News. 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 New York City. FAQ NYC podcast getting more and more interesting by the minute. FAQ. It's FAQ NYC. I'm Harry Siegel here with Katie Honan. Hello. Hey, Harry. How's it going? It's going. It's going. Uh, I see you've got grand gold portraits directly behind you. Where are you? I am in the radio room at City Hall, which is filled with beautiful framed portraits, or paintings. The camera wasn't invented yet. Of who are these guys? The governor of New York, John Young. Just a bunch of white guys. But they're bunch they look, of white guys. It looks weird on a Zoom when I make when I call into these things. But it's like it's like where are you? It's like no, I'm, this isn't my house. It would be funny if it was. You should get you should get some gold frames and just you know yeah. put whatever you want inside. I don't know. Yeah, you're right. I should get some gold frames. So we had a uh, violent Fourth of July weekend. Yeah. In New York City, not the first, uh, but an ominous sign going into summer when the shooting numbers traditionally go up. Yeah. Um, and hopefully are going to be down from last year, which has been the trend in, in recent months, even as all the other crime numbers have gone, continue going way up. Uh, shootings and murders have been down. Uh, but we're going to see Eric Adams has extended his fight against ghost guns to ghost cars. Yeah. By, by which he means the, uh, you know, the cars with fake plates and uh, paper plates and all that, which are, are nothing new, but at least where I live, I can hear the Prospect Expressway from my home. You know, it seems like it's it's more prevalent. Like people people driving who uh, are not in uh, vehicles they're supposed to be in are not insured and and uh, like to make real loud noises while going fast. I mean, I w- I will say to the other issue, not just paper plates, is obstructed plates, and that wasn't really addressed at, at the press conference yesterday. Um, you see a lot of city employees with fake plates. I always say, you know, if you want to find. Not fake plates, I'm sorry, with obstructed plates, whether they... Off-cuff police officers. Yeah, I mean, go to a parking lot and it's whether they have... I, I will say, I don't see those little plastic things on them anymore. Those used to be a lot more prevalent on the road. But um, you'll see the plate folded over or you'll see... Look, I've, I, in my, especially my old car, I would bump into a lot of objects while parallel parking. I have never had an experience where my license plate would be scratched off. <laughs> that seems like someone took acetone to it. Like it was on purpose. So that is also another issue. And look, you know, the city loses out on revenue from potential red light camera tickets, speeding tickets, easy pass. And then additionally, um, who knows who could be involved in a crime and you can't trace it. So it is part of a larger issue. Katie, you've been all over this lifeguard shortage this summer yeah. uh, for the city, the new site in the city, New York City. <laughs> will you uh, will you will you fill listeners in on the, the latest and also just spell out like what this lifeguard shortage actually means to people who are going to pools or beaches yeah. or wherever? Yeah. So on Wednesday morning, the mayor announced um, something that DC 37, the union that oversees the lifeguards within two locals in it, that the starting pay for lifeguards will now go up to $19.46 an hour, up from $16. And that's for lifeguards from first year to uh, maybe third or fourth or fifth year. Um, And the idea, I guess, is obviously to pay more money to people to come on. Um, Starting wages for state lifeguards went up because 
Governor Hochul, I guess, increased it by 34%. Um, even YMCA pools, they give, were giving a hiring bonus. So it was really to remain competitive with other people who need lifeguards across the city, as there is a national lifeguard shortage. But as I... Were they wait to become competitive, though, just given that the summer's already here? Yeah, I mean, it, the timing of it is interesting. And... Um, Look, I mean, the Parks Department has been saying for months that they were that they were looking to recruit lifeguards. But, you know, to their credit, I guess looking at reporters, myself included, we should have been writing about this months ago when we kind of saw a lifeguard shortage potentially around or at least looked into it. But as I ranted about a few weeks ago, um, it speaks to larger systemic issues within the lifeguard school in within the Parks Department that is pretty much predominantly run by the lifeguard union. Um the suggestions made from DOI in a report released last year haven't been uh, implemented by the Parks Department. You know, why on July 6th are you now telling people you could still take the lifeguard test? I know, I know I've heard of people taking it today and it's Wednesday when we're recording this. Uh, and the, the beach and pool season is extended now a week past Labor Day. That was a few years ago they changed this. But why wasn't this done sooner? That's an excellent question. And what's really being done to address these larger issues, because we're going to find ourselves in the same situation next year if there isn't like, you know, a, a better swimming program in city public schools, if there isn't better access to pools, um, that kind of thing. Uh, so it's it's a lot of issues. I'm sure, obviously, it's it's great that people are getting more money uh, and an hourly wage, but it's just for this year, too, I'll point out. And I will say the other change that the mayor made was working to try to maybe work more collaboratively between the Parks Department and other city agencies, um, I've heard from lifeguards who say, like, why don't we have better access to stuff when, when there's a rescue? The fire department sometimes goes in. There's no coordination, that kind of thing. Shifting uh, water for a minute. Yeah. Uh, so ferries. Yeah. We have all these ferries. This was Bill de Blasio's great gift to the uh, city after pre-K. Uh, I hear Bill de Blasio is running for office again. <laughs> I, heard that. I get those emails. Come on, Bill. I won't interview if it makes you any better, feel any better. So Brad Lander just did this audit of the uh, ferry program. What's happening? What's happening with that? So his news today was that the city's ferry system, which is run by the Economic Development Corporation, underreported its costs by $224 million between 2015 and 2021. Um, I will say the previous controller, Scott Stringer, also frequently was critical of the city's ferry service. Uh, he called for it to be brought under the DOT because it would be better. You know, he, he would have a better opportunity to audit it and take a look at it. Um, and I've reported and some of my colleagues have reported. I know um, Kevin Dugan at AM New York has also done a lot of reporting on the issues with the ferry service. It's 275. The subsidy, this lander audit found that the original estimate of $6.60 of a subsidy, it's actually double that, nearly double, and it's been consistently underreported, um, you know, and these issues with the ferry services first implementation, the early termination of that previous East River ferry route, that that re- operator's contract, and then uh, what he says, lack of proper oversight over vac- vessel ac- acquisition. If you remember, the city bought the boats outright when, you know, like they didn't have to do that. And it makes this, it puts the city on the hook for any repairs and issues and not Hornblower, who's the operator. So there's a lot of issues with the ferry, uh, mainly financial. Um, I asked Mayor Adams a few months ago, like, would you take a look at the fifth, the funding source and maybe like, would you increase? I don't know if it would be a sliding scale. 
I don't know. A lot of tourists, right? Yeah. And look, I get if you're using it commuting, um, maybe you won't pay 10 bucks one way. I'm just making that number up. Don't, you know, I, this is not an IBO number, but if you're going to the beach, you might. So there's all these issues and, you know, I don't know. I mean, we have discounted easy pass for residents and all this other kind of stuff. Why not just make like a commuter, a commuter card if you're a commuter, but charge people. I don't know. It's just, um, I rode the ferry Tuesday morning from Rockaway to wall street and, um, you know, it was pretty full. It's a, you know, it was the, I guess, 7.15 ferry. It was full, although the dock was filled with trash. Um, that's a personal, I guess that was, that's a, that personally bugged me. But yeah, I think the city, it's just churning through a lot more money and a lot more than the city anticipated. So, so this, this is the EDC, right? And, yeah. and this is nominally a, a not New York City. It's like a nonprofit corporation that the mayor appoints most of the board members. Of. Yeah. Like, why is that? It's, you know, I was trying to explain this to my wife and uh, she was getting confused and I was getting confused in the course of this. Well, I, I mean, the history of it was, it started under Giuliani, I believe. And I guess the whole point is to, to generate economic activity and growth in New York City. And I think, you know, being, that's what people say when it's an authority, right? Or it's much easier, you don't have the same contract things. And that's why SCA, um, can maybe get things done faster than the DDC because it's it's an authority as opposed to a city agency technically. But yeah, I mean, there's been lots of warranted criticism of the EDC and its structure and how difficult it is to get freedom of information requests, although every agency is bad. So that's the issue. And, you know, why the mayor, my mayor de Blasio had put it under the EDC, I think just because it would have been a lot easier for them to control things and get things going as opposed to the DOT. It's, 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 you know, everyone loves democracy right up until they get elected. And then you find out that having, uh, you know, authorities and corporations and other things that are nominally separate uh, can, can confer a lot of, uh, a lot of benefits for actually getting stuff done. Yeah. Do you know how many people are riding the ferries? Oh, God. I mean, the ridership number, I don't know off the top of my head, unfortunately, you know, there's some studies I know the EDC would get very mad when reporters would report factually that most of the ferry riders are wealthier and a lot whiter than another public transportation. I mean, what do you expect? It's a, f- a lot of the ferries terminate at Wall Street. <laughs> like, if you're surprised that like really rich people are on a ferry that ends at Wall Street, like, you know, I, I think because. It- Bill de Blasio's reasoning behind them was like, these were going to be like poverty fighting ferries or something. When in reality, yeah, it's mostly wealthier neighborhoods. Um, Remember even, his poverty fighting monorail, basically, that was going right. to go up and down the waterfront and, and the, his friend, uh, the Walentis' uh, properties. And the, the elevated G-train. Yeah, yeah the, the G-train above ground. Look, I mean, even look, the Rockaway Ferry, that gets brought up a lot. Um, at the time by the EDC, they're like, oh, we're, we're serving the communities of Far Rockaway, which are uh, statistically poor and people of color. But in reality, if you work in lower Manhattan and you live in Far Rockaway, like why would you take a, a bus ride that's like 30 to 40 minutes to then take another ferry ride that's an hour? So it's it's sort of fake when the, when it's, when the EDC uses the Rockaway Ferry as an example of it fighting poverty, when the, you know, the Western part of the peninsula is predominantly white and a lot wealthier and that's, who's really using it. But anyway, we can go on forever and about that. No free transfer. 
So, so yeah. it matches the MTA fare, but it doesn't get you onto the rest of the system. It's just its own. Yeah. Thing. Yeah. So in just a minute, we're going to have George Joseph joining us to uh, talk about what's been happening with the Brooklyn machine before he comes on. You know, it's interesting because we've now had the city has had uh, George and Oranyanov, who we had on a couple of weeks ago, really focused on, on that story. And it's a rich and interesting one. But it's plainly the problems aren't aren't limited to uh, the Brooklyn. Yeah. And so if you could put your Queen's hat on, <laughs> Queen's Queen, for just a minute, like, what are these political operations supposed to do at this point? And what, what, what is it they actually do? And how does this function in Queens? Like, who do they answer to? Who is staked in uh, their success or failure? You know, lots of lots of our listeners, I'm sure, just voted and they had their judicial delegates there. Yeah. And we're like, oh, shit. I had, I had several people text me, you know, from from yeah. from from the what, like, while filling out their ballots. Like, what do I do? Yeah. Who are these people? I don't know. Who they are. Yeah. Um, what am I voting for? I mean, with the political machines, the Queen's machine, I think the, the power has been a little bit diluted now. Obviously, when Joe, if everyone, everything points back to that night at the Queensboro and Jackson Heights with Joe Crowley playing Bruce Springsteen. But, um, you know, with him leaving office and Greg Meeks now is, is the person in charge. And you could see it during the mayoral campaign last year. Greg Meeks endorsed Ray McGuire. Other Democratic lawmakers in, in the borough endorsed Eric Adams or like Grace Meng and, and, and John Liu endorsed Andrew Yang. So there was not a unified candidate that people really got behind with that. And I think ideally, you know, the political clubs, they all feed into the larger Democratic club. But you're supposed to, if you can imagine it like any kind of ladder of I'm young and I want to be politically involved. I want to join my community board. Oh, I want to be a district leader. I want to then um, get more involved. Maybe I'll run for office. That's sort of how it how it's supposed to go. And you build your connections and your support up through these individual clubs and then through the Democratic Party as well. Um, I want to talk with Andrew Yang about this because he's the guy who was running for mayor as a uh, Democrat. At the same time, he was writing a book about how the, uh, the, the two-party system is a disaster and we need to abandon it. Which to me is just a, I, I'm not a big Andrew Yang fan, but like like a perfect symbol of the deterioration of of, of, of the party structures. That the, the, uh, There are people who still do want to come up through the ranks yeah. and, and just want to get involved. And then it's, it's district leader and maybe I'll run myself, but you have a whole DSA world, a whole bunch of different worlds where, where, where Andrew Yang, where people just find different ways in and pass by all that. And it does sort of raise the question of like what worth these organizations still have. Um, you know, Greg Meeks getting that that far out there with with, with McGuire, I thought was was really interesting because it's just hard to imagine a more potent machine making making that unlikely a uh, a bet. Yeah, and I think looking at a race for mayor where you can flood it with a lot of money. Uh, eight to one matching, but also, you, you, you know, outside money doesn't get matched, but you can have money, especially like Andrew Yang was getting money from all over the country. So you don't necessarily need too much. I mean, he's a bad example because he got like what fourth place, but yeah, this idea of, do you really need the machines to win? Maybe in smaller races, 
as George and Yoav's story published by the city point out, you know, like um, the head of the Brooklyn Democratic Party, they they haven't, it's not like they've swept things. Her husband quit his very high paying job to then lose. She got $190,000 a year job for, for, for this administration. Very yeah. generous. And then gave that up. To then lose a district leader race, an unpaid job. So that, yeah, I mean, there's gotta be other stuff behind there, but yeah, I mean, their story I think is so well done in terms of, explaining where the power comes from, profiling this person, uh, Rodney Suzanne in charge. But yeah, I think, I mean, I also had the same, people said this a lot about the Queen's machine and stuff. And I think, is it dead? I, I don't think things die out. I think they change and morph and they evolve, but um, there's still people involved in it and they still serve some purpose for a lot of people. Well, there, there was the, uh, the DA race, right? Yeah. This is a borough wide race. So it's not just a, uh... You know, and, and AOC, speaking of Crowley, you know, yeah. so, so, sort of popping up in, in this election. And, and, and Tiffany Caban is now city council member, but it looked like she had it. And then there was a recount and she came just a hair short. Uh, but that, that to me was like a real indicator that, that the, uh, the, the existing party structure was no longer even fulfilling its core function of maintaining its own power, particularly... Well, well, I, I will say, and then we could hop on to the interview, but Melinda Katz ultimately pulled that out when they did the recount and a lot of the um, absentee ballots. And I think the the power in the absentee had come from the Queen's Dems knowing how to kind of do that. And that was that was that was sort of what pushed her over the edge. I forget it was double digit that she won, but that ultimately is what uh, allowed her to pull away with the win. And, and you could point to actually, that is a success, you know, I guess a win's a win, but, but yeah, it, it is. If you, if you win, you get the office and the power. Yeah. <laughs> and with that, let's bring in George Joseph, George, we've been talking about the Brooklyn machine and uh, Rodney's Bashad Hermelin who railed against the machine. And then she became it as the uh, headline has it. I'm hoping that you can, you can offer a, a capsule summary of this, 6,000 word piece, which has a lot of, of details you're not going to get without reading it in full, which you should. And then after that, you, you can explain to, to readers who don't follow clubhouse politics closely or at all, why, why any of this shouldn't matter to them, what it says about our democracy and all of that. Sure. Thanks for having me, Harry. And nice to see all of you. I see you quite a bit now. <laughs> so <laughs> this is good. Um, so to start, I'll just sort of explain the origin of why we did this story and the way we did it. Um, for the last five months, basically, Yoav and I have been doing incremental stories on um, allegations of fraudulent activity in the Democratic primary battle between the Democratic primary establishment in Brooklyn and the so-called Reformers Alliance or insurgents group that is trying to take power from that establishment. And often we would hear questions from editors and readers like, well, what is this fight really about? Because on one hand, it's just people fighting over power, but are there values here? What, what are the stakes here? And in some ways, because the fights are so procedural and about party rules and very insider baseball things, it's hard to understand the point of this and, and why it matters. And so I thought it would be interesting to 
get at that larger picture by telling the story of Brooklyn's current party boss, Rodney Bashat Hermelin. Bashat Hermelin is interesting because she didn't come from one of the brownstone Brooklyn reform clubs on the western white side of the borough that is sort of the face of the insurgent movement today. Yeah. Um, nor was she a sort of longtime um, party acolyte who kind of waited her turn in one of these um, old school smoky room political clubs to get to power. She ran against an incumbent in Flatbush, sort of started her own political club based in the Haitian American and larger Caribbean community, and is really a self-made person. Um, she didn't come from money. Her parents were blue-collar union workers. Uh, she's, a, by all accounts, a brilliant person, has accumulated numerous degrees with very little help from the outside, has traveled the world, very accomplished, and in mid-career, broke into politics, um, she says, to help her community, one that had been long neglected in central Brooklyn. Um, and so over the course of her career, she's gradually shifted from that kind of insurgent fighting with the establishment to break into politics to becoming the head of the county machine. Um, and so in sort of very carefully year by year reporting on that gradual shift, we thought it would kind of provide a lesson for the broader population of how this pre-existing machine can incorporate people who are coming up in politics and may very well incorporate some of the self-styled reformers today who are now vying to take her throne. Can you talk for a minute about... Uh Frank Sedia, uh, and about uh, Radice's relationship with him and how that has changed since her, since her emergence in politics and a run, I believe he discouraged her from making. Frank Sedia is the former party boss. Um, in 2020, he abruptly stepped down after years of criticism by reformers for sort of allegedly blocking their attempts at making the party more bottom-up, more grassroots, more democratic. Um, and he handpicked Bashat, who, who then wasn't married, so she was Rodney's Bashat, as his successor. Um, at the time, this was viewed as a positive, both from the establishment, but also from the Reform Caucus, um, because she was someone who had run against the establishment. She had spoken up very frequently on social justice issues from her perch in the assembly, where she advocated for uh, bills that would address black maternal mortality disparities, um, support minority and woman business enterprises, that kind of thing. Overall, she had a progressive voting record on the party's left flank. So people thought this was just sort of an ongoing step in the party moving more left, becoming more progressive, and it also, their view, becoming more responsive to community and grassroots um, initiatives. What ended up happening, though, was that in the two years that followed, Bishot and her allies in party leadership moved to crush dissent from the opposing side in far more radical ways than Frank Sedio ever had. For example, 
following a big party meeting in which the so-called reformers won changes within party rules that were aimed at um, devolving power from the executive committee, under Bashat's tenure, those rules were subsequently, after being voted in, just nullified by a party parliamentarian, prompting a mass walkout. Bashat and her allies have filed a flood of objections at the most low-level races, things that most Brooklyn residents haven't even heard of, like county committee, um, judicial delegates. These are things that the establishment will point out the reformers are also doing, but the scale and the breadth at which she was doing it was sort of alarming to many factions in the party, even as compared to Frank Sedio in his tenure. Um, so pretty quickly, there was the sense of this person is far more top down, far more, I'm not going to brook any dissent than Sedio was, who they felt they could work with. Um, and in the months that we've reported on the party, there have been numerous allegations of forged signatures aimed at knocking rival candidates off the ballot, ghost candidates, the party putting up people to run for low-level party seats without their knowledge, and false representations in campaign communications by party-backed um, candidates. So all of that was a surprise to the people that voted for Bashat to become party boss overwhelmingly on the reformer side, um, and is seen as far more radical in terms of fighting the so-called insurgents than even what Sedio had done in his career. So just to close this loop, how, how did the uh, county do at the polls and with the voters who showed up and understood this so far this year? And at that point, can you step back We've talked a little about this already and just say what it is the county should be doing and who it should be answering to and who, who in fact, you would say it is and is functionally involved in, in, in these operations. So in the recent primary election day, for the most part across the city, incumbents stayed in power. That was the main story at the assembly level. You know, left-wing challengers lost for the most part. Those who were in power, regardless of their political stripes, stayed in power. But in this very insular uh, realm of the Brooklyn Democratic Party internal races, surprisingly, even surprising to many of the reformers, the county establishment under Bashat, many of those incumbents lost, lost pretty dramatically. And so for the first time in recent memory, the party boss is more or less um, even or has a bare majority with the so-called reform slate. And that makes Bashat Hermelin possibly the weakest party boss in recent memory, um, in several generations at least. Um, her hold on a majority seems slim, if she even has one at all. And so that's a pretty big deal for Brooklyn and, and New York City politics in general. So I was curious, especially looking at her husband giving up his very well-paying job in the Adams administration to run for district leader uh, and then losing. 
why that was and what that speaks to in terms of any, you know, coordination with the Adams administration. I just don't know how anyone in this economy or any economy would give up a $190,000 job to to take an unpaid job, right? Because obviously conflicts of interest rules to run for an unpaid job to run, not even have it. So if you want to get into that, I mean, the type, those types of stories confuse me because I'm thinking this person's got to be out of their mind to do this, but obviously there's some reason behind it. It just still isn't clear to me. So maybe you could shed some light on why. So just to go to one of those examples from election night, um, Rodney Spashat's husband was running to keep his um, party seat known as a district leader seat, which is one of the party seats that votes on who the party boss is. Mm-hmm. So several months ago, the city, my colleague Yoav and I reported on how he was both holding this district leader seat and a Adams administration gig, which paid him $190,000 at the same time, which was basically a violation of city rules. In response to an inquiry for that story, he stepped down from that highly paid job in order to maintain his ability to keep that seat and run for re-election because that seat and seats like it matters so much for his wife's power in maintaining a majority in the party executive committee. So it was very telling that even for a race like that, where the party had sent mailers and his support, where she needed people like him to stay on board, that he got trounced almost two to one he lost. Um, Again, at a time when most incumbents in New York politics were staying in. So it does seem like this torrent of scandal and news about alleged corruption has had some effect with voters. And just to follow up, you know, that's what I always think about, too. And it's sort of what you've discussed, why it's important for for people. But I guess the reporting does resonate with Right. I mean, not everyone voting. Sure, it was a low turnout election to some degree, but it's not like everyone voting is some super clued in person. But, you know, when you see like something like that happen and then you think of especially for the New Kings Democrats and other reformers, is that comforting to them to think, OK, some of what we're reporting on this bizarre behavior or or I don't want to say corruption, but just behavior from the machine maybe the tide is turning a little bit. And I don't know if you have any feedback from the reformers on that or, or what it could mean for, for upcoming elections and, and upco- upcoming party rule. I think that the reform groups, which you mentioned, the New Kings Democrats, the Central Brooklyn Independent Democrats, the Lambda Independents, there's, there's a whole alphabet yeah. soup of them. They are excited because every couple of years they've been gaining ground in the party This is almost the biggest leap they've ever made with this recent primary cycle. And so now they're at the point where if they're able to get a few of the independents on board with them, they could mount a leadership challenge against the party boss. Um, That level of, you know, voting power in the executive committee by a reform faction is sort of unheard of in Brooklyn politics. So uh, Schott's husband, Edu Hermelin, right? He was getting paid $10,000 a month from the Adams campaign, the Post reported, which is a lot of dough and a lot more than he'd ever been paid for any work he'd done on a campaign before. He ended up with this $190,000 a year job. And so this does seem like a complicated circle 
right? Where, where, where he is valuable because of his wife's leadership of the Brooklyn party to the point where it's worth giving up on some of those, the awards that come from that to maintain her leadership. Like if the reformers come in and are, are, are able to, 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 to force a change here. If Rodney steps down, which there's been rumors about, um, you know, rather than, than have a fight that she might not win, does anything necessarily change? Is there some cleaner operation like the, the New Kings Democrats who never have been talking about for forever that's more representative and replaces this? Or do you just end up with like a, a new cast of characters filling essentially the same roles? Yeah, that's a great question, Harry. So the New Kings Democrats and affiliated groups like that say they want to make the party more democratic. They don't want top-down decisions over who should be a judge, who should get the party's endorsement, you know, to be made in the dark, because these decisions really do matter. What people don't get is that right now, um, state assembly races, state senate races, these powerful positions can largely be decided by a small group of people in rooms in the Brooklyn Democratic Party because of processes like special elections, where small coteries of people in, in things called county committee decide on who the nominee for the party should be, um, backed by the establishment. That nominee who gets the D on the ballot line has a huge leg up in Brooklyn. And then in these low turnout races, with very little participation from the public, they end up having a red carpet, usually to getting into Albany and then sort of being incumbents, which sets them up for future runs. We just saw this, for example, with Nikki Lucas in East New York. So there's all these sort of uh, very arcane rules, bureaucratic uh, jujitsu tactics that allows a small number of people in party leadership to help shape major political offices, both in the judiciary and at the state legislature level. So that's why all this stuff about party infighting actually does matter. Now, to answer your question about the, the progressives, for example, the New Kings Democrats, their argument is if we were to have a more democratic party where neighborhood block representatives who are part of the party structure were empowered and allowed to make decisions over these kinds of major endorsements, for example, or the party platform, let's say, we could have a very robust grassroots organization that is likely, in their opinion, to push for progressive policy that would help voters across Brooklyn and across the state um, and play a major role in the state legislature given Brooklyn's population. Um, what we get at in the piece, though, is that as the reformers try to expand their orbit beyond white Western Brooklyn and white Hispanic and Hispanic Brooklyn, to be fair, to the rest of the borough, into Orthodox communities, into white ethnic communities in South Brooklyn, into black communities in North and Central Brooklyn, all the way to the Eastern shoreline. Um, if they are really committed to that democratic model of bringing in neighborhood by neighborhood 
sort of representatives, they're going to get a lot of people in the party who do not necessarily have their progressive line on everything. So there's an inherent tension between party democracy, which means get everyone involved and let them have a say, and progressive politics, potentially, which they're sort of treating as interlinked, necessarily. And so what the establishment people who are currently in charge critique them on is you're claiming that this is a natural connection, whereas in reality, you're just going to do what we do right now to make sure your policies, your ideology, your people get in. Um, And so that tension is something that we wrestle with throughout the the 6,000-word piece on Bashat Hermelin. Go and read the piece. You can find it at the city. That's thecity.nyc. Adnis Bishad Hermelin railed against Brooklyn's democratic machine. Then she became it. George, thank you for joining us uh, again. Always appreciate it. And uh, we'll see what ends up happening uh, go, go, going forward uh, uh, with county and with the uh, and with the judicial convention. Definitely. Thanks for having me, guys. Thanks, George. F-A-Q. FAQ.NYC is a production of Racket Media and a proud member of the Brickhouse Cooperative of Independent Journalists, Artists, and Critics, online at thebrick.house. We are headquartered at NYU's McSilver Institute for Poverty, Policy, and Research, and came to you this week from the boroughs of Brooklyn and Manhattan. A special thank you to our guest, George Joseph of The City, and to Adam Kamara, who mixed and edited this episode. Be cool, be safe, and be kind, and we'll see you next week.